you know, this summer, it, it's hard to do this, but this summer, uh, Kirk and I were spending our time talking about Christmas, you know, and trying to figure out what Christmas was going to be. I think one of the challenges as you pastor a church and you've been there for a season is uh, that you feel like in some ways you've said all you know about Christmas in about the first four or five years. I don't, you know, sometimes I feel like we're wash, rinse, repeat on Christmas. But this year, as we talked about it, uh, back in July, uh, I was at Liberty University studying, getting ready for our fall and uh, just taking some time to plan out what that season was going to look like. And I called Kirk and I said, look, we got to think about Christmas. You know, do you have any ideas? And he said, well, our theme this year for our musical is going to be the promise. And as I was thinking about that, uh, he said, I, I have a couple of ideas around that, and I wondered if we might not be able to do that. And boy, over a couple of days, as we talked back and forth uh, over the phone, I got very, very excited about uh, doing Advent this year and uh, just kind of getting excited about what God might have to say for us this year. Uh, and so our theme in our Christmas music, it all works together, and we're just we're bringing to you the promise. And today is the promise of a savior. And if you think about it, what makes this kind of the, the great kickoff for us is that the promise of a savior is a great thing. Because when we talk about a promise, uh, you heard some, some great things as the McClendons were reading to us uh, and the differences that hope brings to us. When we talk about a promise, I always think about expectation. I think about what it means to be expectant about God to do something. And a lot of times we're not expecting God to do something. Can we just be honest with ourselves for a moment? Uh, you, you might come into church this morning and if you were to be really honest, if I was just to, to just drive down into what's in your heart this morning, you came in this morning without expectation. You started the morning kind of like, well, you know, we need to go to church. We need to be there. We, we, we ought to go. I'm, I'm, I'm maybe looking forward to going, but, but the idea that we would expect that we would meet the Savior of the world this morning and that the Holy Spirit of God would speak to us is sometimes foreign to us. But you know, our expectations are often unmet because we didn't have an expectation. And if you expect not much, you get not much. But the promise that God gives us of a Savior is so huge and it's so great. And when I think about uh, a promise to come and an expectation to come, I, I think that looking around and seeing these trees and whatnot, it, it just reminds me of what happens when a child is expecting something to be incredible on Christmas. The, Christmas is exciting when you're a child. It's exciting when you're an adult and you're thinking about children. Maybe it's, I don't know, maybe grandparents. So some of you tell me that it's even better to be a grandparent and see the expectation of grandchildren and the joy that that brings. But when we talk about it, it's often like what we would think about when someone is expecting to get engaged. They're excited about their future. They're excited about uh, that relationship taking its next step. I want you to turn 
turn in your Bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter 53. If you've been in church around Christmas, this won't be an unfamiliar passage of Scripture. And if you're struggling to find Isaiah, you kind of go to the middle of your Bible and make a slight right turn and you'll start to see it. Isaiah uh, is one of the great prophets. Uh, he's not called a minor prophet. You know, we have minor prophets that start in Hosea and run to Malachi, and they're called minor, not because they're not important, but because they're smaller. But Isaiah's long, isn't it? Uh, he, he's one of the major prophets of the Old Testament, and really one of the prophets that gives us most insight into the coming Messiah. The entire Old Testament is built with an expectation about a moment that would happen through a savior. I mean, it's just, it's all through there. You, you heard uh, Maddie Grace reading a minute ago from Genesis talking about what it was going to be like for the promised savior to come. And that's in Genesis already the beginning of the Old Testament. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see this great expectation and it's a promise of a savior to come. And wrapped up in that so much is the idea of deliverance. Now, if we could talk about that for just a moment. In the Old Testament, we read about deliverance. And I think the nation of Israel is really thinking about deliverance in one way, particularly in, in the older parts of the Old Testament. They're thinking about deliverance from Egypt. And if you read even the psalmist, he talks about how awesome it is that God has delivered us from the Egyptians, where they had lived for 400 years enslaved. But as we read through the Old Testament, it begins to change because it wasn't just deliverance from Egypt that was, was necessary, it's deliverance from sins. And we see in, this, uh, in the writings this pining and this yearning for the deliverance once and for all from sin. So it wasn't just enough to be delivered literally nationally or physically from slavery, but that's just a picture, isn't it, of the slavery that exists in our lives as we are slaves to sin. When you read this and you see this, you start thinking about what it might be to be delivered from sin. And Isaiah gives us a discourse on the coming Messiah, the one who was promised, Christ Jesus the Lord. I just want to read the first six verses for us this morning. But let's read this together. Verse 1. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone turned away from, he was despised and we didn't value him. I love some of the older translations said, we, if you're reading King James, it says, we esteemed him not. We didn't value him, we esteemed him not. Verse four, yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. 
When you read this, one of the things that commentators and scholars will tell you about this is that it's written in what's called the prophetic perfect, meaning that as we read it, it feels like it's past tense, but it's obviously not. Isaiah is writing about a future thing, but as we're reading it, it feels like it's past tense. Now, we might think that it's kind of odd that Isaiah would write this in what would feel like past tense. And you say, well, doesn't that mean, like some have said, that obviously Isaiah is writing after the time of Christ. For many years, that was the argument, is that people said, well, obviously Isaiah is writing this. This is not Isaiah. It's somebody who wrote it under kind of a pseudonym of Isaiah, and they're trying to to make it all make sense. So they're writing it after the time of Christ. Don't believe me when I tell you this, that that's not true. Believe history. Go, Go to Wikipedia and just look at Wikipedia and search for something called the Dead Sea Scrolls. I don't believe that Wikipedia is a Christian organization. I don't know if you do. Uh, but they, they, they recount for you the story of the Dead Sea Scrolls. I, I have had the opportunity to see portions and fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and many who have been with us to Israel could recount the same thing. In 1947, in an area of Israel called Qumran, there were some caves there, and there were some shepherd boys looking for a sheep that had gone missing, and in one of these caves, he took a rock, and he threw it in there, and he heard something break, and he went inside, and what he found was jars that the rock had hit, hit, let me get this right, I'm going to say this, bad English is about to come out, and I'm trying to avoid that this Christmas morning here as we're talking about the promise. The rock hit a, a, a pot, and it broke it, how about that? And he went inside and saw broken fragments, and inside were parchments, scrolls that were written out, and, and it contained the most complete versions of the Old Testament text that we have ever seen and had been discovered up to that point. Those had been dated, by the way, to as early as 250 years before the time of Christ. Isaiah didn't write 250 years before the time of Christ, but these were copies of that. And if you go to Israel, you can see these on display. And, And it's an amazing thing because almost a complete copy of the book of Isaiah from that time period exists. So this is something that the prophet is writing to us. And as he's writing it to us and to his people, he's writing it with the idea that's so clear in his mind, it's as if he has already seen it. And what he says about Jesus is important. And it's important for you and I to see the promise of salvation in this passage today. Because ultimately, I say this to you every year at Christmas, If Christmas becomes about a feeling about a baby and some carols and a silent night, what do we have? Christmas is so much more about that. It's the inauguration of the life of Christ that ultimately is fulfilled with his work on Calvary for us as he died in our place. And that's what this passage speaks to. I want you to notice two very important questions that the prophet begins by asking. And as he's asking these questions, he says in verse one, who has believed 
And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? As he's asking these questions, it's an important thing because it's not just a question. It's almost like they are statements of declaration. In in verse one, he says, who has believed? And this is a question of statement, almost why have so few believed is what he's asking. He's looking around at, at his people saying, why is it that so few believe what has been told to us about the Lord? And as he's writing, he's saying in our day, there's there's few believers. And we would say the same thing in our day as well. We look around at the world today and and I I agree with what Billy Graham is is quoted as saying is that heaven is not going to be overcrowded. It's just not. If you look at our churches today, our churches are not uh, uh, in in lack of space. That's not the issue that we're dealing with. What we're dealing with, in fact, is something that we find in the New Testament. Do you remember the parable of the sower where Jesus talked about there were four soils and the sower goes out and he spreads the seed of the gospel and in each of those, it kind of has a different response to the gospel, but only one of those actually takes deep root and sees fruit born out of the gospel. And as we read that and we understand that, what we begin to see here is that there are not many who are true believers today. Not many. And so we make the same exclamation. Who has heard this? Who who understands this? Why is it that so many don't understand? This verse is quoted for us in Romans chapter 10, and I'd like to read that for you uh, right now. It says, how then can they call on him who they have not believed in? How can they not believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message. So faith comes from what is heard and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. Do you see the link that Paul in in Romans chapter 10 was making to this passage? He's saying that not all believe and that is a conundrum for us, isn't it? Because we live with that constant tension of understanding that we have a responsibility as a church, as believers, as those who have been called out of darkness into light, to go into all the world and share the gospel. And I love that Romans says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel. And we can't see people saved unless there are those who are sent. And we have this mandate for us. And yet, how few believe. Because we're called to give witness to men and women, boys and girls. We understand, don't we, that many will not receive. But the second question is so important because it gives us a little insight into this. It says, who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is a metonymy. Now, I read that and had no idea what that meant. I had to go look it up. And I laughed out loud when I looked it up in the dictionary because the dictionary used an illustration that came right back to mind for me as I was thinking about a work experience that I had. It's when you use a phrase or a word to describe something else. Uh, when I worked at Lifeway Christian Resources, uh, they called the executives there the suits. And if you were working and somebody walked by and said, the suits are coming, suits are coming. 
Boy, you worked like you were working harder. You know what I mean? You, you, didn't, you didn't want to be kind of slacking off when the suits were in the building or they were walking by. And that was the illustration the dictionary used. I literally laughed out loud because it took me 20 years back to sitting in my little cubicle and somebody walking by going, suits are coming, suits are coming. When it talks about the arm of the Lord in the scripture, we know this to be the power of God. The power of God. When the psalmists talk about the arm of the Lord, they're talking about his great power. When we talk about how God has rescued us with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, we're talking about power. I was watching basketball the other day and a guy made a layup and ran down the floor flexing, right? I mean, it's just, it's, it's a great, you know, nobody does anything without flexing in sports anymore. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. If you're playing sports, maybe refrain from that for just a minute. And especially if you're a believer, just leave that to the Lord to talk about his arm. I don't know. We don't have to do that all the time, do we? But that's what we see. I make a layup and I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, I'm so strong. I do this, right? When he talks about the arm of the Lord, it's the power of God. So what he's saying, why is it almost that so few have believed? And then he says, whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Whom has the power of God been revealed to? Well, it makes sense, doesn't it? Because when we talk about this, no man, no woman, no boy, no girl can be saved if God doesn't move in their lives. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. What we're not trying to do is sell somebody something. We're not trying to close the deal with people. We're not trying to, to, to just notch something up and say, oh, we had X number of responses. That, that's, that's not what we're doing. I remember being on a mission trip one time when I was a younger man, and uh, we, we were in, in a place where we didn't speak the language, and, and we'd been given some tracks, and we had translators, but, but people were reporting unbelievable amounts of, of conversions. And, and I just, I began to scratch my head and I was asking one of the groups, I was like, I mean, how did you have this, this many? He said, well, we would just take this track and we'd point to it and we'd say yes or no. I'm sorry, but is that what we're doing? Is, is, is that really what it's about? No, it doesn't work that way because we're asking the question all the time. How is it, Lord, that so few hear what you have called us to do? And the answer has to be, unless God moves, no one will be saved. When God visits, people are saved. I want you to think back with me. I, I spoke this illustration to you a couple of weeks back, but I want you to see it from the scripture from Acts chapter 16 and verse 14 talking about Lydia, the seller of purple. A God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple from the city of Tyra was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. Did you see what happened there? Paul's preaching, God did a work. Paul's teaching, God did a work. When we're sharing the gospel, if God doesn't move, we, we got nothing. We're not trying to close the deal. It's not dependent on us. Our responsibility is to be faithful. And we live in that tension all the time. We want to be the people that Paul talked about in Romans. We want our feet to be beautiful because we are constantly going and sharing the gospel, whether that's at Lighthouse Christian Camp over the next couple of weeks. We have many that from our church that will be going, some of our Sunday school classes that will be going. I'll be presenting the gospel message, I think, on December 11th up there with those, those children that they'll bring in and do the Christmas store with. I get that opportunity. I want my feet to be beautiful as I present the gospel. I want them to hear the gospel. I'm praying that God would move, but here's the thing. That's, that's what God has to do. Our responsibility is to, so that has to inform something, doesn't it? If we're totally dependent on God to do something with the message that he has given us to do, 
We have to be a praying people. Our evangelism needs to start in the prayer room. Not with the gospel track in our hand, not trying to close the deal, not trying to act like it depends on us, but it has to start on our knees. It starts when you begin praying for your loved ones. It starts begin, when you begin praying for those that you work with. It, it starts when you begin praying for your neighbors and asking God to move in their hearts. Paul shows up and, and he begins to present the gospel and God does a work and Lydia receives. It's a beautiful thing when those things happen. The power of God revealed in someone's life will change them. Paul was faithful to share. God was at work. And that has to inform our gospel engagements. As we seek over the next few weeks to really finish the tasks that God has given us, as we felt like God called us to share the good news of Jesus with 150,000 people, to engage them some meaningful way with the gospel, to speak the name of Jesus over them, it starts with prayer. It starts with us going before the Lord and saying, would you go before us today as we go out into this world? Would you move in such a way, Lord, that hearts and minds will be receptive to hear your word? Would you do a work? And then the prophet starts to tell us what the work is. And he presents the picture of the gospel that is so beautiful and so striking that I want you to fix your gaze on it this morning and let your mind rest in this for a little while. He asks these two questions and then he gives his story, the story of Christ. Verse two, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive former majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. When the scripture begins to talk about Jesus in this way, it says that he had no formal background. In fact, it says that he was like a young plant or a shoot, some of the scriptures describe. Uh, if you kind of wonder what that is, if you think about a tree in your yard, sometimes you'll see at the base of the tree a little a green shoot kind of shoot out from it, you know, kind of, kind of grow out from it. And if you're really concerned about the health of that tree, what do you do? You want to go and you want to clip that off because it's taking something from that larger tree. And, and you can do that uh, to, to take the health of the tree. And what it's saying is it wasn't like some big branch who Jesus was. He was something you would overlook. It says that he was a root out of dry ground and didn't have impressive former majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. If you think about how Jesus was born, everything about his birth signaled that that is exactly who he was. He wasn't born in a palace. In fact, uh, I, I thought about this uh, this week. I, I have a friend who, I don't, I don't know what he does when he's not at work besides post Facebook and Instagram memes. Uh, and every now and then I find them rather humorous and over Thanksgiving kind of, uh, in that late evening kind of bored and kind of restful, I was looking through those and he posted one and it was a picture of a manger with hay in it. And it said the original king size bed, right? 
that's what it was. That, that was the, the way that Jesus came into the world. If you think about cold and dark cobblestone streets and a young man rushing up and down those streets trying to find lodging for his wife and unable to do so and having to take shelter in the only place that he could find because there was no room for them, they went into a place where there would have been animals and, and perhaps filth and other things like that. And just to get his young wife out of the elements, that's where the king of kings was born. Not in a palace, not in a place that would have announced his birth in such a way that the whole world would have known. In fact, his life from there didn't get much better. You remember that in a dream, his parents were warned that they needed to flee, and they did. They went back to Egypt. Isn't it funny that the children of Israel came out of Egypt in the Old Testament, and later the Messiah comes back out of Egypt and he lands in this little place called Galilee, and nobody's thinking about Galilee. And, and you'll remember that they talk about no prophet ever came out of Galilee, they say about, about him. Who is this guy, Jesus? I mean, he's just nothing. He's nothing. That's what they would always say to him. And, and when it talks about this, it's saying that he had no appearance or form. Do you remember that the first two kings of Israel, it talked about them very differently. King Saul was the first king that was ever anointed when the nation finally said, and I want you to think about this and may you never say it we want to be like everybody else is what the nation said we want to be like them they had something special and they despised it and they said lord we don't want you to be our king we want to be like everybody else and king saul was anointed king over israel and it said he stood shoulder uh, head and shoulders above everybody he was a tall guy strong guy and then it said of their next king of david that david was someone who was handsome in appearance he, he was a, a good-looking guy, but about Jesus, it just says he was somebody you would overlook. It says he was despised and rejected. That, that idea of being overlooked his whole life, that no one would look at him. The word there, when it talks about being rejected, is this idea of that you just are lacking. You just don't have it. You, you don't have what it takes. You're not winning the popularity contest at school. You're not somebody that's ever going to be voted most likely to succeed. You're just a regular, ordinary person in the eyes of people. But that first part of verse 2 is really important. He grew up before him. While others were missing it, he grew up before him. Before who? Before God. God the Father, as Jesus came to earth, was constantly watching. Constantly watching him with great expectation because he was not going to sin. And that gets to this beautiful, beautiful part. Even though he was despised and rejected by men, he knew what sickness was and people turned away from him. And it said people didn't value him. God had valued him. He grew up before him. I told you that I love what the King James says about that. And it's because I grew up doing Bible drill with the King James version of the Bible. And when it says we esteemed him not to value. When you think about what it means to value, it's, it's the idea that you would place worth into something. That you would hold something highly. To esteem him highly means that you would value him 
highly, but we didn't value him highly. We didn't cherish him. We did not hold him in high regard. In fact, John, uh, in the first chapter, describes it like this. He was in the world and the world was created through him, and yet the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Here's the creator of the world, the one who was there when the earth was formed, and it said they didn't recognize him. They, they overlooked him. They despised him. And people do the same thing today. And maybe it'd be a good question for us to answer today to see if we do the exact same thing, even though we claim the name of Christ. Do you value him? Not just as an interesting person in history, but do you value him as the son of the living God? Maybe the question for us as a church today, are we esteeming him highly? Are we praising him highly? Do we recognize him with the full value that he deserves? It's easy for us to take Jesus as anything but Savior. And maybe you have lived your life that way. I mean, Jesus, yeah, there's nothing wrong with Jesus, but that's not to value him. I believe that Jesus was a good teacher, but that's not to value him. I think that what Jesus said was important. He's a great person in history, but that's not to value him. To recognize, uh, to recognize him as the creator of the world, the son of God. To bend the knee in submission to him and kneel before him and declare that he is the creator of the world, the savior of the world, the son of the living God, is to value him. And Isaiah says the people didn't do that. And it's the same today. Verse 4 tells us a little bit more about his work. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was upon him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We've all turned to our own way. And the Lord punished him for the iniquity of us all. This little passage of scripture, verses 4, 5, and 6, is as meaningful of a passage of scripture as you'll ever read in the Old Testament because it vividly describes the work of Christ. It's the clearest picture of what it means for Christ to die on the cross for us. I mentioned this for you, I believe it was two weeks ago, where I gave you this, this great theological term that, that, that theologians use, where they talk about Jesus being the substitutionary atonement. What does it mean? It means that Jesus Christ was our substitute. He went to the cross and paid for our sins instead of us having to pay for our sins. And that idea of a, the atoning sacrifice, theologians also use this word to describe, they use a big word, propitiation, meaning that God was satisfied and his wrath was satisfied in Christ. There is no more for us. That's why in the New Testament we can read that great verse that says, now for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for us. It doesn't exist for us because the condemnation was placed on 
Christ. Jesus is literally our carrier. My sister was reminding me of this song this week and I I didn't even place it together with with our passage that we were going. But when we were growing up, there was an old song that we would sing sometimes that said, Jesus is the carrier. What, What is it? He's the carrier for us in our lives. He's the carrier of love from God the Father to us, but so much more than that. I want you to see that it says in verse four, he himself bore our sicknesses. Did you notice it said yet? Meaning in spite of the fact that we despised him, that we overlooked him, it says he himself, yet in spite of that, he bore them. What does it mean for him to bear them? It means literally that he took them off of your, your life and he placed them on his life And he walked to the cross, and as he carried that cross to Golgotha that day, what he was doing was he was carrying your burden. It was yours to carry. And he took it off of your shoulders and placed it on his own. And as he walked that day, it says he took our sicknesses, not just our, it doesn't mean when he talks about our sicknesses, the cough that you have or the the flu that you've had or or what, it's not that. It's the sin sickness that, that we have. And as we think about that, you go back into verse three. It says he was a man of suffering who knew what sicknesses were. Do you remember that oftentimes Jesus was pained as he watched people suffer? Do you remember oftentimes that Jesus was pained as he looked out and he, he looked at some of these cities and, and he says ultimately about Jerusalem, I have longed Jerusalem for you to rest in the shadows of my arms and you don't, you don't see who I am. He was grieved by those things and it says he carried them, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God. Have you ever totally missed something in your life? I mean, just totally missed it. You looked at a situation and you thought it was going to be one way and you were certain that was how it was going to be and yet you discovered later that nothing could have been further from the truth. That's what happened here. Jesus bears these things to Golgotha, to Calvary, that mountain where he was crucified. And while he's there, what do the people do? And and let's be very honest here. Let's not separate ourselves from the people because we would have been there right there with them yelling, crucify him, crucify him. What did they do? They said, if you're really the son of God, save yourself. Call on the angels, let them bear you up. Do whatever you need to do. If you're the son of God, come down. Show us that you're the son of God. They believed he was cursed, stricken by God. They mocked him. They totally missed it. He placed on his back your cross and carried it to Calvary. He placed on his back my cross and carried it to Calvary. And we made fun of him for it, mocked him, teased him, despised him. Verse five says he was pierced because of our rebellion. Jesus only knew one thing in his relationship to the father, obedience. He only knew one thing and that was obedience. And so at every opportunity, he obeyed the Father. At every 
moment in his life, at every juncture, he obeyed the Father. As he sat in the garden waiting for that night where he was going to be betrayed and he began to pray, he began to understand the weight and the enormity of what was going to happen and what did he say? Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so as he's on the cross, this idea that he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, the punishment for our peace on him. It's talking about this picture of Jesus hanging on the cross. And you remember what happens, don't you? The Jews want the, the Roman soldiers to get on with it and say, can you, can you break these guys' legs? And that's an important thing because as you're hanging on the cross, it's ultimately death by asphyxiation, isn't it? Because you lose the ability to push up to grab a breath. And as you're just hanging there, your lungs can't breathe. And so you lose the ability. So what did they want them to do? They wanted them to come and break the legs of those three men, the two, the two thieves, the two criminals, and Jesus being the third. They wanted them to break the legs. So they broke the two thieves' legs, but when they came to Jesus, what did they say? He was already dead. And just to be sure, do you remember what they did? They took that spear and they poked him right here under the ribs. And what the scripture says is that the water and blood flowed out of his body. Why did they do it? Just to make sure he was dead. Pierced. And when it says pierced, it was for our rebellion. Your rebellion. What rebellion? The rebellion against God. See, that's what the scripture calls sin. God says, this is the way I want you to live your life. As you do this, we'll be in good relationship together. And we say, thank you, but no thank you. I'll take option B. I think I know better than you. This seems more pleasing to me than to do what you would say, God. And the scripture says that that is our rebellion, that we have run away from the Lord. And because of that, God's wrath was placed on us. And God in his mercy chose to place the wrath that should have been ours on his own son. The wrath of God satisfied at the cross. Our peace satisfied and realized at the cross. And in this great line, we are healed by his wounds. When you think about that and you consider what salvation really cost, you begin to understand that it didn't cost you anything to come to know the Lord, but it cost Jesus everything. Grace given freely to us was costly, it's meaningful. And so as we talk about this, it makes sense, doesn't it? That verse 6 perfectly describes us. We all went astray like sheep. We've all turned to our own way, and the Lord punished him for the iniquity of us all. 
That is really the Christmas story. When Isaiah is writing about this promise to come, you understand that we, we still have uh, a lot of time left before that happens, right, in the scriptures. In fact, when Malachi writes, there's hundreds of years in between the word of Malachi, the last prophet, and the gospels when Jesus comes. And they were looking forward to this promise, promise for us. And when we understand how far we are from Jesus and how far we are from God, we, we start to really understand what it, it means to, to see Jesus as our substitute. And that promise being realized in our lives today gives us a promise that we've yet to see yet. And then that's eternity. The promise of Jesus in our lives saving us gives us the hope of eternity. I tell you this all the time, but your salvation, you're just getting a glimpse of it right now. So much of it is yet to come. It's still in the future when we see him face to face and we live in eternity with Jesus, with no more sin, no more sickness, all of those things. But for us this morning, we have to go back to those first couple of questions. Who has believed? Have you? I don't mean do you believe in the Christmas story. I don't mean are are you excited about baby Jesus' birth and the wonder and all. I I mean, but have you believed the gospel? Has there come a time in your life where you have chosen to place value upon Jesus that's more than a teacher, more than, than just a historical figure, more than a story around the holidays that inform your American traditions right along with you know, things like uh, Santa Claus and elves and all those kinds of things. I mean, that, all that's just traditions, right? That we, we celebrate and we, we do and we live. But I mean, is, it, is it different than that or is it the same category? Jesus died for you. He died for me. Have you believed what you have heard? There is no other way. You'll never be good enough. You'll never do enough to satisfy God. Because the sin in your life separates you from God. And only Jesus can bring you back to the Father. Who has believed? Whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Could it be today? Is the day of salvation for you? The day where you finally understand, like that story of Lydia that I mentioned earlier and read from Acts, that Today is the day of salvation because God has has made it so clear that without Jesus, you're under the wrath of God, and yet Jesus has taken all of that. He has borne our sicknesses, carried our pains, pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. And the peace that's available to us was on him in punishment from God. 
I have two questions for you. The prophet started with two. I'll finish with two. One, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we value him, it must inform every aspect of our lives with expectation and hope. Does yours. Does your relationship with Jesus change that? Does it make it so that you understand that if you have expectation and hope, then a worship service is not just a, a time to come and check the box this morning. A life group class is not just a time to come and, and check the box that you, you got that done or a Wednesday night. It, 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 all that is meaningless if we don't come in with hope and expectation that we're meeting with the living God to hear about God and that the arm of the Lord would be so powerful in our lives that it would change our lives first. Because if our lives haven't been changed by valuing the Lord in such a way, then our preaching, our teaching it's dead as we go into the world. It must start with us. And if it does, then it would change, I think, our prayer lives this morning. Rather than being frustrated with those who are far from Christ, we would be prayerful for those who are far from Christ. Second question, perhaps you're in the building this morning and today is the day where it's finally made sense that you have a sin problem and apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have no remedy, zero. What would keep you from giving your life to Christ today? Oftentimes people say, you don't know how bad I've been. I have a pretty good idea. And you say, well, what do you know about me? Well, you were bad enough that Jesus had to carry your sickness, your pain. He was pierced because of your rebellion, crushed because of your iniquity, punished because you, just like the rest of us, have gone astray. You're in good company in the room. They may look very churchy, but they're very sinful because we all are. It's only the work of Christ in our lives that makes a difference. You might say, well, I need to get some things straight and then I'll, I'll come and do that. But you don't need to get things straight except with God because God's already done the work. We receive salvation. God does the work of salvation. He did it on the cross. That's settled over and done. The question is, have you believed? Has the arm of the Lord been shown to be powerful for you today? I hope so. I hope that you wouldn't run through a Christmas season and miss an opportunity to know the living God and to be saved this morning. So I'm going to ask us all to bow in prayer. And in a moment, we're going to stand and sing a hymn of invitation and I'm going to give you a chance to respond perhaps it's for those of us in the room to come and respond with a, a reset just to say Lord I, I need to, to reset my life I need Lord to, to rededicate and to, to value you in a way that has been missing and to set hope and expectation again based on the promise of the Savior 
But it might be this morning that you're not a believer. You've never been saved. And today would be the day of salvation. And that's our prayer for you today. That the arm of the Lord would be revealed. That you would see his strength and his might. That through Christ, hell has been defeated. Death has been defeated. And we can be made alive in him. If you've never done that, and that's your heart's desire today, I want to invite you just to repeat a simple prayer after me. It's not the prayer that saves you. It's belief and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is what we read earlier. Calling on the name of the Lord. Would you do that with me today if you've never been saved? Father, you might say and repeat, I know that I'm a sinner. And as I've read this today, I know Jesus died for my sins. Father, your mighty arm has delivered nations. Deliver me. Save me. Restore to me what has been broken by sin. I want to know you. Thank you for loving me. Jesus, thank you for taking my sin. Save me today. The Bible says that all who call on the name of the Lord are saved. And if you did that this morning, you did it with all of your heart, I believe that the scripture is true. That you were saved. In just a moment, as we sing, I encourage you to leave where you're seated and standing in a moment and And come and tell me about that. The Bible says that if we confess Jesus before men, he'll confess us before our Father who is in heaven. So do that today. And church, as we enter this time, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus shed for us. We thank you that we have heard that your arm has been revealed to us. We pray, Father, as we value you and live with hope and expectation that you would move in our lives in such a way that it would change our interactions with people. Father, we pray for those interactions, that you would let us see people saved, that you would move in people's lives so that as we are faithful to share the gospel, Lord, you would be faithful to do what you've always said you would do, and that's save people. Deliver them. We ask this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.